Welcome to What Has My Attention. This is John Beethan, your host, producer for the show, and the president of Imagine Podcasting. Dr. Gretchen Smeltzer, PhD, has worked hard for 25 years to change the conversation about trauma, growth, and development for individuals, groups, and organizations. As she says on her website, healing from trauma is possible. Healing is brave, and no one heals alone. I consider this interview and conversation to be one of the most important episodes covered in this series I'm doing here, Women in Strong Leadership. Visit the episode notes for the link to Gretchen's website, and there you'll find articles, blogs, and videos, including the March 2020 interview on CNN's Anderson Cooper titled, How to Cope with Anxiety and Stress Linked to Coronavirus Pandemic. This episode could be considered a bit of an update to that conversation. After listening to this episode, and when you find it useful, because I'm sure you will, please share it with others you care about, family, friends, or co-workers. It's important. And please pick up her book, Journey Through Trauma, from her website. Trauma and What We Can Do Now is what has my attention. Dr. Gretchen Meltzer, PhD, welcome to the show. I am so glad to have you. And I want to give a shout out to Shannon Giordano for introducing us. And she was actually on episode 21. We were talking about different things. So how are you today? I'm doing well. I'm really glad to be here. Yeah, I am super glad to have you. As I told you before we started recording, I just... um, you know, I, I, I play in this arena. I'm familiar with it. Emotional intelligence and uh, trauma don't know too much about really. But my partner, Stephanie, um, is a certified uh, therapist. I've learned a lot from her. Yeah. So first question I want to ask you is on your website, healing is possible. Healing from trauma is brave and no one heals alone. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. I I have those three up there um, as reminders for people and and sort of simple language to break it away from psychology speak, which can sometimes feel clinical or overwhelming. Um, healing is possible. I talk about because I think a lot of people who've been hurt give up or feel like it's too big so they can't start. And I really want people to know that it is possible to heal from trauma. It's, you know, it's not a a perfect cure. There'll be a scar or, you know, if you think of mosaics, they're beautiful because they're made up of pieces, but you can move from a place where you feel broken or you feel hurt to a place where you feel more whole. Mm -hmm. How does that, how does that happen generally? Just kind of a brief overview. And it's like, you know, I was going to ask that, right? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know if it's too early in the podcast to go into this, but, you know, I talk a lot about repeated trauma. So not trauma that happens just once, not like a car accident, which is also awful, but trauma that happens uh, more than once. Like if you had a car accident every single day. Right. So repeated trauma has a different impact on people. And it's really made up of three pieces. What what happened the trauma that happened? Um the protections you use to survive repeated trauma. So we kind of shut down or we stay away from people or we do things so that we're not so overwhelmed. 
And then the third form of repeated trauma is what didn't happen, the healing and growth that couldn't happen while the trauma was occurring. And, you know, if you think of a country at war, they're not building roads, they're not building schools. The, the what didn't happen during that period of time is significant and needs to be addressed once the war is over. And it's similar for individuals who've experienced repeated trauma that you're not making friends in the same way if you grow up as a kid with trauma or you're not learning skills or you're not learning to ask for help. Well, so would you say it's very that that structure is in place right now? I mean, here we are. It is uh, what? August 6th, 2021. And everybody thinks the pandemic's over and, and you and I both know mm, probably not. No. I mean, when you watch major organizations put, push their dates, of everybody returning to the office. I, I, I sometimes, they're the canary in the mine are the people who have large corporations with a lot of money to lose if they lose a lot of their people. So, you know, I've, I, this morning I read in the New York Times, people are pushing it back to October earliest and a lot of people are pushing it back to January. So it's not over. And we're watching rates rise and hospitalizations rise. Um, I've been talking to a lot of organizations about COVID as repeated trauma. And we've also had the racial reckoning this year where there's been a lot of trauma. We had the insurrection, you know, there's been a lot of trauma in the in our country in the last year and a half. And it's been relentless and it's been, it's not the same for everybody. So not everybody's experiencing equal amounts across um, the country, but it has been relentless. And and people are tired, they're worn down. So there's the what did happen, whatever you experienced. And there's the protections that people have been putting into place, whether that's to stay home, whether that's complete and utter denial, I'm just gonna do whatever I want. Whether that's changing their jobs, doing, you know, living their lives differently because of COVID. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's a lot of what didn't happen. I mean, and that's gonna vary developmentally. So what didn't happen for a nine-year-old is not the same that didn't happen for a 31-year-old, right? Or a 90-year-old. Um, but there's going to need to be some attention paid to what do I need to do to come back to be my best self, right? Yep. You know, once again, I want to actually encourage people to go to uh, GretchenSmeltzer.com because there's such great content there, Gretchen. It's like unbelievable. And there's a video on the media page, April 3rd, the presentation with uh, – was what was that presentation about? It was titled "Managing the Stress of COVID-19." It was for um, the Mount Holyoke College alumni. Yes, sorry, thank you. There was a lot that stood out. The slides were great, but one thing that uh, you talked about was how it is trauma or what we're people are going through is during this time is very different depending on the age group, and it's like you didn't like you said you're not too concerned about the really younger children. But it's the teens who in the, these years and early 20s start socializing and they haven't been able to or less. Right. And, you know, it's been really interesting to watch um, different people go through it, different families. Right. There are some teenagers who needed more time with their families and they've kind of, you know, sunk their roots in and gotten something that they wouldn't have otherwise gotten. And there are some teenagers who are ready to like burst out of the nest and they were forced to stay home. And they're now antsy. You know, they're the young adults who are trying to get back to work in an office and get their first apartment. And so it's been, it has been really different. And I think I've been really encouraging all the people I work with to 
look at their kid or look at themselves and say, how has this experience been good for me? What Have I gotten something that I wouldn't normally have gotten? Have I gotten more time with my kids or more walks in nature or, you know, a longer morning with my family than because I didn't have a commute? And have I lost something, right? Have I have I lost a family member? Have I lost my sense of security? Have I lost um, my routines, right? So you, really looking at what have been the gains and what have been the losses through this. Mm-hmm. So you're talking about self-inquiry and also asking others. And what I'm identifying as a problem, living in Southern California, I'm a very involved in the Carlsbad Chamber of Commerce, and I'm aware that people just aren't talking about it. Yeah. I think that's kind of the number one problem because I do think that so much is accomplished in conversation and relationship. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So I've been encouraging um, leaders, so managers, leaders, when I'm working with them in organizations, you know, a lot of people are starting to have staff meetings or get people back on board in a different way. And to really encourage them to have the conversation about these gains and losses during COVID with each other, mm-hmm. partly because there there almost was a rash of like national sales meetings and things where people were pretending it didn't happen almost. Mm. You know, we're just going to skip right over that and talk about where we are. And I had I've listened to a variety of people be really angry about having their experience ignored, but also we can't learn from each other if we don't hear from each other and we can't we can't support each other if i don't know what's been hard for you or what's been great for you right yes yeah there's a lot of wisdom there so with the uh, march 20th uh, episode or show you were on cnn's uh, anderson cooper um, how to cope with anxiety and stress linked to coronavirus pandemic it's actually off your website which is really really interesting uh, you know what i got a sense when i was watching that is that was like a year ago. That was March 2021 and or 2020, I guess it was. And we were right in the middle of it, right? We had, it had really just started. And it, that March um, is when everything shut down. And then I ended up on Anderson Cooper because I had written a blog called Our Finest Hour, where I was really trying to get people to recognize that it wasn't about them. It was about our behavior is about protecting other people in the pan, in a pandemic, in with any disease that is transmissible, <laughs> it's really about protecting other people as well as ourselves. And you know, I, I think about that blog now, and I've often thought, like, what's the pro? What's the epilogue to that? It really wasn't our finest hour. I mean, that being said, I got a lot of letters um, after that blog that where people did did act. Uh, school shut down. I had um, nursing homes write and say that they they stop visitors. Like I think people for the people who were ready to listen, th- mm-hmm. that helped them do change their behavior. Mm-hmm. But it it did obviously <laughs> didn't change everybody's yeah. behavior. Yeah. Well, I have to say, my partner Stephanie lives in Santa Fe, New Mexico. I'm in Carlsbad, California. We were separated by a thousand miles and now 19 months separated by COVID. We can't, yeah, we, you know, so here's the thing, Gretchen, we talk twice a day Mm -hmm. and I figured out last month that we've had a thousand fifty conversations in 18 months. Wow. Probably more than most couples have, you know, but it's these conversations and 
we can we do feel very transparent. We can talk about anything. And sometimes it's just ordinary stuff. It's like, you know, how's the cat? How's the dog kind of a thing. But occasionally we enter into an extraordinary conversation where we just let it all hang out. Yeah. And and I walk away just always feeling so good. So it's kind of like back to have the conversation, you know? Yeah. 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 So in these, uh, since last year, big question I have is everything you talked about back then, is it still relevant today? Yes, I think it is. It, partly because it's been so, I'm trying to think, I'm I can't pick the word, but you know, Louisiana is where New York was a year ago. Hmm. Right. So as the country goes through this experience in a really different timeline, mm -hmm. it's re always relevant for somebody, first of all. And the other piece is that I don't think in terms of crisis level, I think, you know, there's a, a different sense. You know, I'm not completely on lockdown here in Philadelphia, but I think we're all in a mindful state, you know, of of paying attention to how close we are to people and um, how we have to take care of ourselves or anticipating seeing somebody who's more vulnerable. So I'm going to stay home this week in a different way than I might have. I think that what's different now is really looking, what we didn't have then is the long-term impact, right? It was all new. It was sort of high crisis. So we needed to stabilize. People needed to find some sort of stabilization. I think what we need to look at now is the impact and some assessment of what do I need to do to re-engage with the world in a in a more long-term way that become where some of these things become part of my routines mm -hmm. for the next year or two, because I don't think this is going away for a year or two. Yeah. There's a lot of people with the mantra of, you know, we can now get back together. You know, I, I've adopted inside mask wearing, um, mm -hmm. outside yeah, we'll see. Depends. But what I'm crystal clear about is that um, I'm going to continue to meet new people and stuff over Zoom or some other format. Yep. And then use meeting people face to face in for social reasons only outside in the right place. Mm -hmm. In other words, I don't want to go automatic meet somebody face to face, but I want to have a relationship with them. Right. And a lot of people. I think part of the challenge is, is that we don't really get the nuances of meeting face to face when we're on a screen like this. No. And I think people just need to understand that, you know, and I think, well, yeah. Yeah. I was going to say that, you know, I think we also can't underestimate the difference of the, the energy level that it takes to try to engage on screens yeah. all day. And I've, I'm really seeing in the work world in the corporate world, it's taking its toll. Yes. People are much more burned out. Um, well, that being said, you know, I, when this whole thing started, I found myself on Zoom a lot. Um, I got my Blu-ray filter glasses. They're actually, you know, clip-ons, which has made a huge difference. However, uh, I still take time. I will be on my computer for maybe an hour to an hour and a half, and then I'll mm -hmm. go for a 10-minute walk. Yeah. Because I just need a sense of reality. Right. You know? So what do you think people should or could be doing now besides, you know, self-assessment and asking the questions and having the conversations with family and coworkers? What else can we do? I, I think it, it, like you were saying about you kind of assessed your day about 
what works for you, right? And I think everybody's got to do that. I think there we did a corporate overlay of the day. We just took our in-person meetings and we put them on Zoom. And so now people have these back-to-back -back eight hours straight uh, on Zoom. And I think there's a there there's a real need to say, what do I need to do to be for this to be sustainable for me? Right. What and that and I don't think it's the same for everybody, first of all. All year I kept trying to tell people that they should add in a pandemic to the rest of their sentence. I'm homeschooling my kids in a pandemic. I'm running a team meeting in a pandemic, right? As you're working through your day, you should be paying attention to what what helps you stay energized, right? Yes. And when do you need to take a break? And the other thing I was telling people is that, you know, we're living in a more sustained stressful situation, which means that at the end of the day, you need to intentionally shift your energy back to a center and not just go from like super energized to plummeting down into like, I'm done, apathetic, chill out. Yes. So, you know, figuring out what helps you make that transition or that shift and whether it's whether it's a walk around the block, whether it's talking to a best friend, whether it's making dinner with your kids, whether it's doing something that that you enjoy doing, like knitting or going out and working in the garden or something. And that that's what you say becomes stabilizing, right? Yes, exactly. So choosing those things that, you know, are stabilizing for you. Like for me, it's music. Right. And and I don't wait till the end of the day either. Mm -hmm. You know, for me lately, it's been sitting off to the side, low volume. For me, it's lately, it's been Chopin sonatas. Mm -hmm. Lovely. Yeah, really, really lovely. Sometimes it's Led Zeppelin. <laughs> <laughs> is that like the musical version of a mood ring? I don't actually know what a mood ring is. Tell me. Okay. Uh, they were a thing in the 70s where you put them on a ring on and it changed color based on your mood. I want one. It sounds fun. It sounds really fun. So getting past all what we ta just talked about, what I really want to do is kind of give you the floor and ask you the question, what really has your attention now? Yeah, I, I, I alluded to it earlier. I think what has my attention a lot right now is this idea of burnout. So I've been doing executive coaching for nearly 20 years. Mm -hmm. And this is the first year in 20 years where I have many people taking a leave of absence, taking a medical leave of absence, leaving their jobs, changing careers. That just people hit their breaking point and they're done. And I'm not even talking about, you know, I think I've done a lot of work inside hospitals. The medical world, the physicians and nurses and other medical health providers are really, you know, they're at their breaking point and they're, but they're so mission driven that they're continuing. That's something that I've really been working with a lot of people on, which is how to really pay attention to recharging their batteries anywhere they can. And also getting, you know, this is maybe the silver lining of the pandemic, which is what's really important to me. Right. Yep. That's really, really important. I mean, you talked a lot about that uh, April 3rd yeah. on the presentation. It's just like really, really what's important. Right. I mean, I, you know, I have 
people really talking about the fact that they they're talking like you are with your partner, which is like with their spouses saying, what is really important to us? Do we need two um, incomes right now? Do I want to be ambitious in my career the way I was before? Do I want this career? You know, um, I'm a big fan of adult development. I love growth and development. I love helping people grow. And often adults kind of coast along. They get there, they get to sort of where they want to work and they start just kind of coasting along. Automatic. Kind of, yeah, on autopilot. And and also because I think we don't, as a culture, say it's pretty normal to want to do a different thing seven years from now, like or that you're going to grow and this might feel too small for you, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so big crises, whether they're good crises, like I have a kid or I get married or I get it, I get promoted. Those are good crises, right? Or whether really difficult crises like the pandemic or a major illness. All of those have us on our edge, a new edge. We look at the world differently. We look at ourselves differently. And the hardest part about the pandemic, I found, I, I, I think I may have alluded to it when I talked about it in March, but even now, is that crisis or stress or trauma tends to shut growth down. You know, we stop growing. We, we take our all those poker chips of energy, and we put them towards the crisis or the trauma. This pandemic is actually requiring us to grow, to change our routines, to change our perspective, to, you know, treat people differently. And so we have we have that. I think that's where a lot of this burnout's coming from, is that, you know, we've got these stressors coming at each other from both sides, which is, you know, our, our systems want to stop growing and the situation's demanding growing. Yeah. I have two things to say about it. And I coined this phrase several years ago, which is, and I'll just say it in, in the context of where we're at now, is, is that choosing a standard of living or a quality of life. Mm. And I think now a standard of living is very stressful and challenging for many people, just not even possible. But right. you can have a quality of life. Yes, and you can cho- you can make that choice. And I think part of the, when the pandemic came, at some point I just kind of leaned back and went, oh, here's a gift. Because I knew that people were, that things were going to slow down. Right. And, and we're still there. Right. And it's very different, right? So there are, you know, I'm a knowledge worker. I get paid because I help people learn and I can do it over video. And I'm fortunate that I can do that, right? My brother works in the food industry and he is not doing a lot of stuff on Zoom. He's in person. He's going to stores. He's, you know, so it's really uh, bifurcated in our country about who gets to kind of slow down and stay sequestered and who is kind of out in the fray of it. Those have different stressors. I mean, it's, it, that even that's not all equal, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that the risk has been carried by different groups differently. Women and especially black and brown women were really impacted in terms of jobs and the loss of jobs. The hardest part is that in order, like I've been stumped writing about how to help people because there isn't a people. Yeah. Right. It's, It's really been very different for very different groups. And I think we, as a, we, the people need to hold those variations 
mm-hmm. um, and do the best we can in our spheres to support people getting the help they need, getting the lowering the stress as much as we can. And that's going to, you know, whether you run an organization and you can make sure that there's time for people to pick up their kids or to teach their kids, whether you're a knowledge worker who makes sure that the people who are working for you, you're talking to them the way you are talking about how important conversation is. Mm -hmm. There's Mm -hmm. things everybody can do to kind of create a different climate around uh, how we support each other. I am still on Zoom calls with people and the dog may bark, the kids may scream or whatever, and they and people on the other end start apologizing. And I just ask them to please don't apologize. We're in a pandemic. Right. Right. And yeah. personally, I like the dog barks. I like the kids. It's yeah. life. It is. It yeah. is. I, I was working with a physician who said, you know, actually, the telehealth is interesting because I get to see the other kids or I get to see the room that the kid it, like spends their time in or, you know, so people even in that world, they're getting more data. And a lot of people I'm working with are saying, you know, I like seeing the dog and the kids like I, I like getting to know that side of my colleague. Right. Yeah. Well, it's it's real transparent and people are, you know, now you get to know, oh my gosh, it's a person. It's not a machine. It's not a salesperson. It's not whatever they think they are. They're actually human. Right. Right. And human, you know, and it's, I just, I think that's where we need to be. And it's like, even before the pandemic, that's kind of where I came from. Mm-hmm. It's like, I'd have people at the chamber of commerce come up to me and Hey, my name is, and they start talking about what they do. And I just stop them and say, just stop let's get to know each other. Mm-hmm. And if, and if, you know, if, it, if we like each other and stuff, well, we can go there, but let's get to know each other first. And I think that's really, really important. Yeah. Yeah. What else has your attention? I have this, I have this sense, Gretchen, that we could go on and on for a while Yeah. and, and I'd be happy to, but I want to also be respectful of your time. We have about a half an hour according to what you said. So. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think it's interesting before I wrote my book or before it was published, which I want to talk about. Yeah. So it's journey through trauma. And I was a, a psychologist. I am a psychologist, but I worked with kids and families for about 15 years. And then uh, a colleague had started a consulting company that was doing work uh, for the United Nations Development Program. Mm. And so she Uh, called me up and wanted me to talk about how does trauma affect emotional intelligence because the leadership work that they were going to do in these different countries was going to be based on emotional intelligence. And two of the countries, uh, Cambodia and South Africa, had been recently post-conflict. So how how could we think about that? So I I sat down with um, her and her colleagues and talked about that. And shortly after that, they offered me a job. I had, I, my goal up up until that point was to be chief psychologist on a child psych unit. And after that, I, I sort of jumped ship and went into the organizational world to do leadership development. And I've been doing that since 2002. And then in 2018, my book came out and I thought, well, I'm not going to be able to do my leadership work anymore. Like trauma is going to scare off the leadership world and it's too touchy feely and I'll, I'll go back to, to the clinical world. And 
actually, even in 2018, that was pre-pandemic, but um, there were, it was starting to be in our, the Me Too movement came through. Um, the, there were tons of school, school shootings. Oh yeah. That, right. That there became this, this kind of constant um, drumbeat of trauma affecting community after community. And I found myself talking about it when I was doing uh, different leadership work. So when my book came out, I, I'd started saying, yeah, I wrote this book about trauma and actually leaders started asking about it. And when the pandemic hit, I did a number of webinars for different organizations on um, leadership and trauma. And how, as a leader, do you support your people through a crisis and through this kind of environment of repeated trauma? That, in many ways, that's been one of the bigger surprises, or it has my attention, in that I think people have wanted to know this for a while. If you think about the, the statistics alone, what was 6,000 veterans committed suicide last year? Oh right, 93,000 people died of an overdose last year. Um, so, you know, lots of families are living with trauma. If you just take the statistics and break them down to what that would be affecting the average American family. So I think people have wanted to understand it better. And, you know, I also think that post-World War II, so I often try to explain to people that the modern American workplace the post-war workplace that we know and love and don't love was designed after World War II with all these men, mostly men, some women, but mostly men returning from war who were basically that the design was that we don't talk about emotions at work. It's really a post-traumatic, it's a repeated trauma response to trauma, right? And we've designed a work culture around it. And now we're all still trying to live with it, which is I leave my, my, my personal life at home and I bring a work self and I don't show any emotion and nothing bothers me. I basically have a, a shield up, right? Which would have protected me from the trauma I experienced and trauma I brought home. And now I don't have to share it. I can just lock it down um, in my post-World War II state. And now I feel like there's a, this is an opportunity to help people both hold both, right? It's not that I, I think that workplaces should be the same as hope places and that we don't bring different selves up around to our different locations, but I think we could be a lot more integrated. And I, I know from the research and from my work around emotional intelligence that we feel before we think we need to have the capacity to hold our emotions and use them as data. They're absolutely data. Um, to make the best decisions as leaders. So curious about trauma. I mean, you know, I'm kind of a student of Brene Brown's mm -hmm. and um, kind of wanted to ask you about that. But, you know, I do know with trauma, in many people's minds, um, there's a word shame that is a, that surrounds that. Right. So if it is a the trauma of rape, I know mm -hmm. there's a whole thing of shame but I think people haven't talked about trauma partially because of the shame. Right. So do you intersect with Brene at all? Not, you know, in not any personally. Way? I've read her no. books, but <laughs> well, not personally yet. <laughs> right. But 
do you, you've read her books and stuff, and uh, is there an intersection there in terms of academically that you're seeing? Well, she does a lot of um, beautiful work on vulnerability, right? And mm -hmm. how to, and I feel like she, in very lovely, simple language, helps people understand how to hold that, you know, how to take down the shield and sit with their own vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And so I think um, I, lots of my clients have found her books really helpful. You know, the thing about shame is that the the hallmarks of trauma are it is terror and helplessness, right? Oh and yeah. It's the helplessness that triggers shame. That is it, that the is that the freeze, um, fight flight freeze. I mean, no. It it, it the, how your body responds mm -hmm. is the fight flight freeze, and freeze really is when fight or flight won't work. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right. But the the help in that moment, you're help. You feel helpless. As as a human beings, we like to have agency. We like to feel like we have a choice. We can do something. And so one of the worst feelings for a human being is that we can't do anything to protect ourselves. That feeling alone will trigger shame. Mm. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. What else? I know there's more. Right. So the the thing about shame is that it's a it's an emotion that needs uh, needs light and others <laughs> others like so no, that no one heals alone right yes that when we're held in our experience of shame and seen for who, for what we are heard for witnessed for what we experienced the shame mm -hmm. goes way down mm -hmm. and uh, we don't experience it the same way. That shame's an experience of I will be excluded. I will be, you know, it's almost um, it's a very mammalian. I will be shunned from the herd. Yes. Right. Yes. And seen for the helpless and hopeless person that I'm. I felt at that moment. Mm. Right. That that when we imagine trying to share our trauma, often it's people will see us at our worst moment. Mm. Right. And when we experience it in a group, when we um, when we get to share it, that that goes way down. Yeah. And that's that's a big problem. I think that's a big problem for the soldiers returning from war in our country. That is a group based trauma. They experience things as a group and then they come back and have to kind of hold what they live through as an individual mm -hmm. and we as a country are not being asked to hold it with them. Yeah. And I, I resent that. I resent that that's not uh, on upfront and on the plate in terms of um, encouraging people to do so. I am really thankful that um, I'm actually producing a podcast for Vance. It's veterans association in North County. Mm -hmm. And it's a wonderful organization whose sole mission is to support the 50,000 servicemen in Camp Pendleton mm. and the San Diego area and the vets. Mm -hmm. I've also had the opportunity to do three audiobooks with uh, Vietnam War vets. Oh, wow. And, and it completely, quite frankly, opened my heart. Yeah. And an appreciation for who these people are and what they've sacrificed and given up. And, and then even last night, I discovered that Gary Sinise, mm -hmm. 
who was in um, Forrest, uh, Gump. Forrest Gump. Yeah. You know, he was not honored at the Academy or anything, but I guess months later after all of that, he was approached by the military because of the part he played in the film. Right. So he created the Gary Sinise Foundation to support the vets, the wounded vets and everything else. And I got to tell you, it's, it's sort of like I've spent time with, um, I've spent time with autistic organizations in San Diego, like, uh, like the special Olympics and stuff mm -hmm. like that. And it's like an opportunity that nobody should miss. And I feel the same way about the service. Yeah. I was never in the service and I had very little contact with anybody in the service until I came to San Diego and it's opened myself up to, you know, having compassion for the pain and, and the suffering that well, many of these people have experienced. Yeah. And I've grown because of it. And I'm really, really grateful about it. What, yeah. where, where my thinking goes around it, I've been, the other thing that has my attention is wanting to depathologize some Whoa, of these Say that word again. Depathologize. So we use a lot of, you know, you'll hear, pe hear people saying I'm depressed or like a lot of clinical terms that yep. sometimes now mean nothing because people are just talking about being sad and, you know, and sometimes mean a lot because it's a real clinical diagnosis. Right. Mm -hmm. And especially around trauma, I feel, I feel like there are very normal human responses to hard things. And we don't need to take um, a clinical view necessarily in the sense that I think people need help. And I'm I, in no one heals alone. I think I believe in therapy or consulting or coaching or some other human, mostly because most repeated traumas are repeated relational traumas. Right. So child abuse, sexual abuse, domestic violence, all of those are happened in relationship and need to heal in relationship. But. I also think that when we think about um, people who've lived through war or people who've, all of us living through the pandemic, we don't need a giant clinical diagnosis. We need, we need some compassion and we need some real thought about how to, how to in, help people integrate their experience and how we need to hold that experience. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot of the work you do, right? Because I, I would like people to know exactly kind of what you do do in a professional uh, pay the bills kind of a way, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, my day job, if I would, would characterize it that way, is I work as an executive coach and a leadership development consultant. So I work with organizations to help uh, very senior leaders uh, lead their teams differently and lead their organizations differently. I help a lot of senior leaders grow into their positions or transition into new positions. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, so often people are given positions of leadership coming from management and they're not taught at all what it right. really means. Right. You know, some of my clients are uh, parts of hospital systems. I'm working mm -hmm. with physicians who were beautifully trained as physicians and given no information at all about how to be leaders and then have to lead very big organizations. So um, mm -hmm. 
And that's true of a lot of professions or, you know, most people aren't promoted because they're good leaders. Most people are promoted because they were good at what they did. They were good engineers or they were good um, financial analysts or whatever they were. Yeah. And just because you're in an executive position does not make you a leader at all or even a good leader, leader at all. Right. But you are, but people are relying on you. So something I tell people is like, as leaders, you know, your people are going home and sitting at the dinner table talking about your impact on their day. Mm. Right. So I never thought of that. How do you want, how do you want that conversation to go at dinner? You, you have some choice about that. Yeah. Yeah, without smoothing it over. And the quickest way to get to that is is to do this work that's necessary to be transparent and real and hum, human, right? Right, right. And, you know, the other piece around trauma for me is that the more everybody can heal their own trauma, the more they're available for other people. Mm. So I think it's really important that we all do the work we need to do. And th- that way we are going to be better able to grow ourselves and we're going to be better able to hold other people while they are growing. Yes. This might be a tricky question, but it just popped up in my mind. I do have the gift of ADD. Mm -hmm. I do have a tendency to take left turns and right turns. Knowing what you know now, before the pandemic, but you, you saw that it was coming, would you have done anything differently? Personally or? Probably professionally. Professionally. Um, I, I don't know if I would have had enough uh, oomph for urgency to get people to pay attention. Before the pandemic, we were, I was focused a lot on emotional intelligence, on inclusion, on um, helping people understand levels of system and doing a lot around stress and trauma. But I, I think what, what people were missing as they headed into the pandemic was the ability to, to discern what they needed for themselves or their kids in, the, in a more specific way. There's a, in some ways we have this like, I should need, or I should be able to, rather than what my kid needs is a quiet corner. What my kid needs is to be on Zoom with his friends. Like, or what I need is two quiet hours in the morning and then I can do all my meetings, right? Like to be able to be a little more assertive about what works and doesn't work. Mm. And it's still relevant today, huh? Yeah. 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 So personally, how would you have done it differently? Well, I ended, I moved in March of the pandemic. So um, I might have postponed. <laughs> so were you in the middle of the pandemic and, and thought I got to move or had you? No, I had planned it from the previous October and that was the date that was planned. And I just kept up with the date, but it's, um, that was a, that wasn't easy, but actually, I mean, given the work I do, I was, I was fortunate to keep working and also keep writing. So it, that was, I took all of my COVID energy and I put it into my garden. I watched oh, a, a lot of gardeners world, Monty Don's gardeners world um, on the internet uh, all during Jan, you know, all during the year. And then just completely dug up my whole backyard and turned it into a garden. 
Oh, good. Vegetable garden or flowers? Uh, both. I have flowers. I have vegetables. I I have little beds that I named the way they named garden rooms in England. So. Oh, <laughs> oh that's fun. Yeah. That's fun. You do you have a photo book coming out anytime soon with that? Uh, if you if you my Instagram has a lot of pictures on it. Yeah, I actually saw some of the pictures. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah, where yeah. I put my my flower pictures. So I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna take this all the way to the hour. Okay. And I want to cir circle back and ask you what briefly is the journey through trauma. So I'll back up and say that my motivation for writing the book, The Journey Through Trauma, was that as a therapist, I found that people who were trying to heal from trauma didn't really understand that you feel worse before you feel better. And they would come to therapy and in you know, like feeling bad and they would think, I'm going to feel better. And at a certain point in therapy, you actually feel worse, much like any physical therapy or other things that you're trying to heal um, in, in our human bodies. And I really wanted to create a map uh, and a guidebook that helped people say, oh, I mean, I'm in this place. Of course, it's going to be hard and give them some support and patience through um, a longer journey. And it, I think healing from trauma takes a while. Um, and, and, it, and it's different for everybody, depending on what you live through. I'm not, I don't have a prescribed amount, but it, long enough that people get frustrated and leave. And I wanted to give people the support to stay with it. What I do is describe a cycle of healing. So healing happens in cycles. It's not a linear process from like, I don't feel good to I'm perfect. Yeah. Um, so you have this cycle, which starts with preparation, which is like attending to the resources that you have, whether it's internal, like my will, my perseverance, my sense of humor, whatever I'm bringing to the table, and then external resources, like am I living in a safe enough place? Do I have some meaningful activity? Are there social supports? Is there a therapist or somebody else I can lean on? Um, so do I have do I have my team? I kind of liken it to a Mount Everest climb. Like, do I have my team? Am I ready to go on this journey? Right? Yeah. And as you work through that, those pieces, you at some point you feel safe enough to let start letting go of your protections, that middle part of repeated trauma. You you lower your shield more to what you were talking about with Brene Brown's work. Like you let yourself be vulnerable, but when that happens, all the emotions come out. Like, like you open the, that closet door and it all comes falling out. The stuff you shoved in there all those years. Right. And that I call unintegration. So it's not disintegration. You don't break apart. And in the beginning of the pandemic, I was talking about that in some ways, that distinction that the pandemic, kind of caused disintegration. And I was trying to help people go back to the a preparation or a stabilizing phase so that when things start coming apart, like they are now with people really assessing, do I wanna stay in this job? Is it working for me? Those kinds of questions. Um, you have a little more support to go back to, or you can go, you can go back to the preparation phase. And then mm -hmm. as things start coming out, you name them. You put language to them. You be able to, you're able to put pieces together, the feelings, the ideas. That's identification. And as they all come together, creating a whole. 
And that's integration. So that this is my feelings of the event. This is my experience of the event. This is how I would describe it. And once it's integrated, two things happen. In some ways, there's a sense of mourning, like that really happened to me. I can see it or that happened to us. And there's also simultaneously, which is the hopeful part of healing, a sense of new beginning. Like, okay, if I know that that's true, what can I do now? Um, now that the past is the past, the possibility of a future opens up. So brilliant. Two questions, maybe one left before I let you go. Simply put, maybe in one sentence, what do you think people need to know or what would be most useful for people to know now? That was a big sigh. Yeah, it's a big question. Slow down. I think the biggest piece for people is to slow down and be able to start looking at what's there. And, and that wisdom's in everybody. And when people do it, they end up with so much more. There, I, what I find most uh, in the work I do um, with adults is that they haven't caught up to themselves. They're kind of running so fast and their wisdom's behind them in all their life experience and in some of the shameful experiences and in the things we don't like to look at, there lies our wisdom. And when people slow down and let the parts of themselves catch back up, they're really able to do things they didn't think they were able to do. But it, it's, a, it's a scary process. They're not used to it. And it doesn't, it's not sort of socially rewarded right? We're rewarded for achievement, not integration in some ways. Yeah. And we all think we have, uh, we can do it ourselves. Right. Right. Which is just not true. I was going to ask you to title this episode. Uh, what we can do now. <laughs> <laughs> Good. I like it. I like it a lot. You know. Let's remind people about everything you have to offer at, uh, I'll let you read the website. Um, the website is uh, at www.gretchenschmelzer.com. It's the blog is the trail guide. Okay. What else about the website you think people find really that they really like? I mean, I know what I like. Well, it's a, it's a real mix of uh, writing about trauma, writing about growth and writing um, for parents who are helping their kids grow. There's been, that mix has helped a lot of people. I've had people come for the parenting and stay for the trauma. I've had people come for the trauma and stay for the parenting. So it's been a real, it's a real mix and it's free and there are no advertisements on it. So it's a relaxing place to go. It has been for me. <laughs> Gretchen, I really appreciate you being here. Thanks so much, John. You're welcome. <laughs> 